0: on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Good morning. Hello, Ronnie. How are you? How are you? Yeah. How we're getting you get... Into, we're getting
1: yeah. into the winter, I, you know, right. uh, and it is funny, but I have to say, uh, I have to take my hat off once again to Machness because yes. I know it's over a week ago... Uh, that they produced con more for the Galway audience. Yeah. What a spectacular thing it was. Totally,
0: totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I didn't see it at night. I was told however wonderful it was during the day, it was so much better at night because it was lit up, emanating smoke and everything. And my my two little grandchildren who are four and two, they just loved it. And they especially loved the big ladies. It took me a while to realise that we're talking about women on stilts walking around. (laughs) But the whole thing was pure mockness. Mm. Just magic. And... uh, and enormous crowds there it was yeah. it was thrilling to see it
0: absolutely. I did go down to see it actually, Tom, just in the gathering darkness, and it seemed to change its expression on the face as the lights changed. It was remarkable, magnificently, yeah. beautifully made, it uh, yeah. really was, and as you say, huge crowds, and once again, Machness you know thrills the town, you know, yes. and it was a very innovative thing to do rather than having a parade. They yeah. brought the huge crowds which attend the parade into the fisheries field, that wonderful field uh, there by the li- the river. It's just wonderful. I was totally knocked over by it. I thought it was brilliant.
1: Yeah, they're, they're outstanding. They One of the parades they did many years ago was based on Noah's Ark, and that gave them a license to produce two of all kinds of weird and wonderful yeah, monsters yeah, and right. animals and things. Yeah. And at the end of the parade, there was a huge rubber round tower, and on top of that was the Dice Man Tom. Binter,
0: I remember
1: playing God. Oh, God, and I asked him the following day, <clears throat> "What was it like? What was it like up there, playing God, looking down at about seventy thousand Galwegians?" And he said, "It was as if a giant spell." came down oh, and spread oh. itself all over Galway <laughs> and made everybody happy for the day. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, that oh, is goodness. just the perfect definition yeah, of a yeah. mockless event. That's and amazing. I have to say, Conmore lived absolutely up to that.
0: Didn't it just? Uh, didn't yeah, it, it yeah, yeah, The yeah. lovely Diceman, a uh, uh, most original man, uh, yes. sometimes dressed in very skimpy clothes and would walk slowly of the town, uh, yeah. deliberately placing one foot down, followed by another foot. And I remember I was at the ATM in the Bank of Ireland in Maingard Street, and I saw tom mcginty coming up and one foot in front of the other and i said i hope now he doesn't see me but he did see me and he changed his direction towards me i was trying to get the money out as quick as i could from the wall (laughs) (laughs) because i just was a bit embarrassed i shouldn't have been because tom was just full of fun and uh and mischief yeah and mischief and mischief Yeah. yeah You know, so uh, he did. He did. Uh, he did understand that I was a bit embarrassed, which is silly to be embarrassed, but I was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that he would have delighted yeah. in that. I know. Yes, yeah. he did, of course. Uh, but but these occasions, isn't it wonderful that we have? groups and people in this town that you know will just throw caution to the wind and let their imagination run riot and as you say looking down on a magic kingdom yes it you know and the the adults are as enthralled as the children there's no question you know oh absolutely yeah
1: yeah in fact you know i envy my grandchildren and everybody else's grandchildren growing up in this creative environment that we have oh, today. They yes. have just gone through Barbaro, yes, uh, yes. which always makes me jealous because I can't go to most of the <laughs> events. And I would love to, I'd yeah, love yeah, to be yeah. a child again with them, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, we're we are we're very fortunate where we live.
0: Well, my grandchild is brought down from Dublin, especially for Barbaro. And she's mm. just totally spirited away, totally mm. captivated by what she sees. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. What a yeah. great idea. Yeah. Okay, Tom, we better get down to things now. What are we talking <clears> about <throat> this week? Where are we?
1: Well, in spite of you trying to do a trailer for me last week, I am <laughs> going to talk about the Galway shawl. Oh, yes,
0: I know. I remember.
1: Yeah. This this was actually a specific type of a very heavyweight shawl, and it was worn by women during the cold season. It was a very, very popular shawl, uh, form of garment in the 19th century, and it was still being you would remember and I would remember uh, (coughs) just about uh, older, some older, more traditional women up into the 1950s wearing it. It, The shawl was actually worn by women all over Ireland. But for some reason,
0: I remember it was
1: known as the Galway Shawl.
0: Yeah,
1: it was a winter weight outer garment and worn over a more lightweight shawl underneath. They were woven uh, on a shakar loom in Paisley in Scotland, but uh, they used they didn't use any Paisley design or anything. The Galway version was, uh, it was woven on a cotton warp with a weft of botany wool. <clears throat> there were reversible shawls. There were a solid color in the center, but they had a decorative kind of multicolored wild border. And they were fringed as well. Yes, the solid yes. color was often a fawn colored, uh, and I remember these very well. I do too. <laughs> I do too. The border design wa- varied, and <clears throat> it was often in browns and reds. They <clears throat> excuse me, they contained neither velvet nor fur, but they were referred to as such because they were very heavily milled. Uh, And in the finishing, there was a soft velvet like feel to the surface. Now, in 1892, just one company in Paisley employed 40 weavers making these shawls, 40 weavers making these shawls. They were sent to to the Galway woollen mills and the fringes were put on in Galway. Uh, So the pattern on the shawl and the way it was worn, I've often identified the lady and the status of the lady, indeed, and also particularly where she came from. Many areas had a border design that was exclusive to them, unique to their area. Uh, experts could tell you, looking at a lady in a shawl, exactly where did she come from, whether she came from colon or Spiddle or Gort or wherever. Uh, <clears throat> Now, they were practical as well. They could be used as a bed cover. Uh, occasionally, they would lift up an end of it and they could carry goods in it, vegetables, that kind of thing. But they were expensive. <laughs> the fawn, uh, the, 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 they were considered Sunday best. Really. Yes, they were. They were. <clears throat> yeah. they were usually inherited or sometimes uh, bought for a bride upon her marriage. Uh, the cheaper version of it was a plain black shawl, uh, and this this would have been the working shawl. This would have been worn while they were working uh, <coughs> like the the fawn colored design shawl, Paisley, were uh, <coughs> Sunday wear or for special occasions. Now underneath there were a lightweight shawl. This was usually hand knit or crocheted. And again, it might have been, it varied with the, all the women. Sometimes it was a solid color. Sometimes it was a print, it was played. Uh, <clears throat> but they were worn directly over the blouse and they were tucked in at the waist. And they were worn in all seasons, really, both indoor and outdoor. Now, <clears throat> as the years went on, the shawls became unfashionable. And it was only old, older women, really, who wore them. And they would have been referred to as shawlies. They would have been kind of looked down upon. The garment became more (laughs) associated with poverty and backwardness. And, uh, you know, I I mean, I remember them vividly as a young fella. But I don't know when I saw one last. But the funny thing is, they live on really in the form of traditional songs. The Galway shawl is a hugely popular ballad Uh, and the other is not so often heard but also lovely song is the shawl of galway gray this always intrigued me because i don't remember many gray shawls myself Uh, i'm sure certain they existed they wouldn't have written the song otherwise so anyway i have uh, a couple of three photographs this week You may have seen all of them before, but it's to illustrate the shawl and the different types of shawl. So the first is of three elderly clad ladies, and they are modeling. All of them are modeling paisley shawls of different patterns. And they must have looked wonderful, uh, looking at them in a group like this. Uh, The second photograph I have is of two clad ladies, uh, Mrs. Kelly and another lady who... Uh, Biddy Kelly was her name, but she was known for some reason as Bideen Swift. And these two ladies are selling cockles and mussels. They're actually, when I think of it, almost outside the Galway advertiser office, right? Uh, but it's a long, long time ago. Now, these women are wearing they're out working, so these are wearing the plain black shawls. And the final image, then it's a studio photograph, <clears throat> but it's lovely. It's of a young lady posing. Now, she is wearing the inner uh, shawl, the woven shawl or the hand-stitched shawl. Uh, And she is carrying a skib with a lot of fish in it. Uh, She was dressed for the fish market. But it was obviously taken, the photograph was taken during the summer or warmer season, certainly, because she didn't have the warm outer shawl. Uh, So it's three different Yes, lovely photographs, images of the kinds of clothes that clad the women wore.
0: That's lovely. Yeah, I remember them well, Tom, in the Saturday market as well. uh, Yeah, exactly. Women with shawls, uh, usually the black shawls. Sometimes you'd see the lovely, as you said, the fawn colored shawl. Um, My my grandmother had one, of course, she never wore it, but she had it as a kind of a rug, which she put over her knees, if you know what I mean, when she was sitting. even yes. when she was sitting by the fire she put the shawl over her knees but um, yeah she she was a great admirer of the shawls and uh, you know often talked about the patterns on them why Paisley I wonder why that pattern took took such hold Tom I wonder why yes
1: I often wondered I mean yeah. the Galway Woolen Mills now yeah. like, uh, the, the Paisley would have predated the Galway Woolen Mills anyway yes. and it was of course a great center of textiles anyway, uh, yeah. you know, so uh, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. We had, we had a, a, a few small, but on a very small level, uh, industries making these things. But I would say the demand was such that, you know, it became a very popular, obviously, in the 19th century.
0: Yes, and
1: uh, so Paisley was able to meet the demand
0: yes, you quite know. a practical uh, form of clothing as well no you know you could wrap it around you, keep yeah. it warm, you could loosen it up and yeah uh, it
1: was a square garment, but it yeah. was always worn folded, so it was kind of
0: yeah
1: two triangles if you like, folded into yeah. two triangles uh, and and but women wore them in different ways as well
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember your story, Tom, about um, the day that Patrick Joyce was hanged uh, in Galway Jail, and all the shawls kneeling on yes. the bridge praying yes. for. That's a very powerful yes. Yes. image the, the, of the, yes. the triangles
1: of, of shawl, is what yeah. she called it, Yeah. Uh, of women on the kneeling on the bridge praying for yeah. poor Pat
0: Joyce. Yeah, yeah, that's very very yeah. interesting. Okay, well that's great. Um, I don't know if the museum have got samples of these things. Maybe they do. I must go down again. I, yeah, I, I went. I saw the exhibition you talked about recently about the war between friends, which yeah. I enjoyed very much. But um, yeah. I didn't. Oh, it's very good. The yeah. museum again. I'll do it. I'll go down again. I'll go down again. It's a pleasure to go there. Anyway, you just have to say I'm going to the museum today and go. <laughs> that's right. Here, yeah. here.
1: I couldn't agree more, and be entertained.
0: Oh, it's totally...
1: And in- informed, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: totally absorbing. Yeah, good man, Tom. All right, okay, that's great. So
1: back to my Cullen now.
0: Yeah, back to my Cullen, and uh, yes, in oct- the autumn of 1876. Now, as, as I tried to tell last time, there was a complaint made against Dr. Connolly, the medical officer of the my Cullen dispensary, uh, for neglect of duty, accusing him of drunkenness and using improper language on the evening that poor Patrick Barrett's wife was gravely ill in child labour. And it was taken very seriously, however, by the local government's board. Now, At a disastrous first meeting, I said last week, between the board's inspector, Dr. T. Brody, and members of the dispensary committee, and Connolly, Connolly completely lost his rag. He insulted the committee, claiming they were ganging up against him, and he pushed himself against the committee's chairman, John Kine, in a threatening manner. So as if, you know, it must have been of great interest to the board as they waited a letter from Dr. Connolly explaining his extraordinary behaviour. And of course, Tom, I needn't tell you, the letter when it arrived was charm itself. Connolly immediately stated that Mrs. Anne Barrett sustained no injury from the time between the ticket supplied by the relieving officer which entitles the bearer of free service, as I said last week, delivered to the doctor's housekeeper and the few hours delay that the doctor took to see the patient. Furthermore, the doctor claimed that he was frightened of Patrick Barrett's threats. His housekeeper was alarmed when she heard Barrett say that he would have the doctor's life And the letter went on to say that Tom Keneally, Barrett's brother-in-law, who accompanied Barrett that night, was asked next day about the patient, repeated. Now, don't forget, (laughs) old Keneally was under pressure here, repeated that Barrett had said, if the doctor goes to Ballinahalia, he will not return alive. Of course, that was a lie. Keneally worked for John Geraghty, the most powerful man in my cullen, I said. He owned a pub, he owned the post office, and in addition, he was the poor law rate collector and a friend of Dr. Connolly. The doctor's letter goes on to explain that a few years ago, a gentleman's windows were smashed at night, and that the police had questioned Barrett about the incident. And then a quote from the letter, a threat from such a person, the doctor wrote, might justly excite terror. <laughs> the doctor continued to say that he called next morning about 7 a.m. to see mrs ann barrett and her labor was progressing slowly the child unfortunately was dead the doctor cautiously tried the forceps which failed to compress the head he gave her an opiate and left the house and returned two hours later again he reapplied the forceps but without success He told Barrett that the only course was was an operation which the husband consented. Quote from the letter. I successfully operated, the woman calling on me a few days later to thank me. The letter concluded, in reference to the allegation that I was drunk, Barrett distinctly told the... dispensary committee that I was perfectly sober. Again, another terrible lie. If I were drunk, Barrett would not would be most unlikely to ask me to see his wife who was in labor. When I and another quote, when I refused to attend without a ticket or fee, Barrett adopted an insulting tone, stating that I would not attend the patient at all, which of course was another lie. I then and it was with the greatest pain I have to confess and for which I express express my sincere regret so far I forgot myself, and I used the expressions complained of therein. Now, despite the doctor's protestations of innocence, preparations for the forsworn inquiry continued. There was a delay in the mail being delivered to poor Patrick Barrett, stating what time and schedule of the inquiry. Of course, the delay was blamed um, on John Geraghty. Barrett blamed John Geraghty and a friend of the doctor for all these postal delays. He wrote again to the local government board, lamenting that his only witness, his brother-in-law, Tom Keneally, Mm -hmm. had been prejudiced against him through fear of dismissal by Geraghty, whom he worked for. All this, writes poor old Barrett, I attribute to Mr. Geraghty's evil influence. And it is in this house, Geraghty's pub, and in the company of this man that the medical officer spends the greater portion of his time. At this stage, I'd say poor Barrett must be thinking that he was getting out of his debt altogether when he challenged the only doctor in the Moycullen Dispensary District to account for his drunken behaviour the night of his wife's illness. Now the doctor had influential friends and they were telling lies with impunity, but he never suspected that the surprise witness called on behalf of the doctor would be none other than his own wife, the poor woman whom he had fretted over during her difficult. Anyway, I'll come to that. The sworn inquiry was held before the inspector of the local government board, Dr. T Brody. The witnesses statement were given uh, smartly and efficiently Barrett's Uh, Brother-in-law Tom Keneally, don't forget he was in the pay of Dr Connolly at this stage, stated that he could not say that the doctor was drunk on the night occasion, nor could he say that the doctor was perfectly sober. He added, I'm in the employment of Mr Geraghty. He keeps a public house. I never saw the doctor drunk in Mr Geraghty's pub. The doctor's housekeeper, Catherine Joyce, being duly sworn, testified that she heard Barrett cursing and swearing. She said she was afraid to open the hall door and took the ticket in from a window. I saw the doctor, she says, before he went to bed that night and before the night that Barrett and Keneally came to the house. The doctor was sober. I saw him before leaving for Barrett's house at six o'clock the next morning. He was perfectly sober. Dr. James Connolly himself also testified under oath, admitted he had used offensive expressions to Barrett, but not he says until I had received great provocation. He claimed that Barrett warned him that if he, he if he would not take the last ticket that then if he would not take Barrett's ticket, then it would be the last ticket he would ever attend. By this, the doctor said, I believe he was intending to attack me and I further believe that he was feeling in his pocket for a knife when he made that expression. Connolly said that he was perfectly sober on that occasion and concluded, and I quote, I was never drunk in Garrity's house. Garrity is the postmaster and keeps a licensed public house. I occasionally turn in there for a glass of ale. And that was the end of his Uh, evidence.
1: I only went in for one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, the surprise witness, of course, was incredibly, was Barrett's wife, Anne. Dr. Connolly, she said, attended me in my confinement in the month of September last. He paid me two visits on the same day. He treated me carefully and kindly. He made several attempts to deliver me before he had the recourse to use instruments. He was sober. On the previous evening, I expressed an opinion that the child was not alive. A few days after my confinement, I called on the doctor to thank him for his care and attention. Dr. Connolly had attended me on a previous confinement. He came without a visiting ticket or request for money. He saved my life on that occasion. And Tom, to compound her statement even further... She had previously sent the chairman Brodie the following note, which was read out to the inquiry. The note reads, I hope you will give my husband, Pat Barrett, no heed, nor no hearing to what he says concerning Dr. Connolly, that kind gentleman who saved my life, which I feel very thankful to him for. For he has four hours before he was wanted, he was with me. And if you don't pardon him, I will shorten my days, she says doctor brody yes. with the exception of a gentle reprimand for his use of bad language quote so derogatory to the character of the medical practitioner and the gentleman dismissed the case entirely against doctor connolly well, <laughs> i have for to merit. leave it i have to leave it there i have to leave it there but in fact it was the last straw uh, to various people in the uh, particularly members of the dispensary committee that knew well what Dr. Connolly was up about. And in mm-hmm. fact, uh, next week, Tom, there's an appalling story r- reminding the committee that Dr. Connolly was once so drunk, he fell on top of the patient and the two bodies were tangled together. So oh my God <laughs> I will leave it at that. I oh, okay, that, even though it's very difficult to imagine a person of the medical profession from drinking too much, one cannot possibly imagine.
1: Oh,
0: no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, Tom. Right, right. yeah, Wonderful. I'll
1: talk to you next Another week. cliffhanger, Ronnie.
0: Another cliffhanger, you take care, Tom. Yeah, okay, um,
1: God bless. Bye.